You're listening to episode 141 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Make sure you do not miss out on our brand new feature article called Letting the Ghosts In by J.C. Cervantes. We just published this article last Monday, and it's written by the author of The Storm Runner, releasing in September. She wrote a beautiful and moving piece about the ups and downs and the heartbreaks you'll come across throughout your creative life. This essay is an absolute must-read for any of you who are struggling with self-doubt and wondering if you're good enough. And trust me, it's been making waves in the community with so many people writing to us on Twitter or through messages and Facebook that this essay has touched their hearts. Be sure to also check out our recap of our three-year anniversary party written by Olivia Liu, one of our very own listeners who joined us at the event. Olivia poured her heart into a fantastic piece that lets you live vicariously through her experience and detailed perspective. The article also features a ton of stunning photos from the evening, and I have to thank my dear sister, Melora Chang, for brilliantly capturing the joy and the spirit of the evening. We're getting closer and closer to the start of our competition for awesome giveaway prizes to continue our three-year anniversary festivities throughout August, so be sure to look out for those directions on social media. And y'all have been asking for more 88 Cups of Tea merch and swag, and guess what? We have a limited amount of 88 Cups of Tea tote bags specifically for our anniversary, and we have pop sockets. Look out for the announcement with links coming very soon on our social media. Now backtracking to read the new feature article by J.C. Cervantes and the 88 Cups of Tea three-year anniversary event summary, I've linked those up in the summary section of whichever podcast player you're listening to right now. Now on to today's conversation. We have Aisha Saeed with us, a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote Written in the Stars, which was listed as a best book of 2015 by Bank Street Books and a 2016 Yalsa Quick Pick for Reluctant Readers. She's also the author of the middle school novel A Mall Unbound, a summer 2018 indie next pick in Amazon Best Book of the Month, has received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, and is a global read aloud for 2018. In today's episode, we go into detail about the mindset of being an author what it was like for her to struggle with the path to publication from finding literary agents to hearing 29 no's until the final yes on the 30th submission to getting published. We talk about how her characters came to her while studying for the bar exam to become a lawyer and how she was then able to complete her manuscript while working as a lawyer. She walks us through how she got the inspiration for the story ideas for her latest novel, A Mall Unbound, and how writing the story has impacted her. We also go into how she keeps organized as a writer and keeping track of each character and making sure they're consistent. This episode is perfect for you listeners who are struggling with the timeline of your publishing process and for any of you who need an overall boost in confidence. Now let's jump right in. I want to just kick it off and just start like really rewinding all the way back when you first fell in love with storytelling. I know this is a huge question, but whatever is your first memory that comes to mind and we'll start from there. Oh, that's a, actually no one's asked me that before. That's a first. Um, 
So, yeah, for me, I think um, storytelling came hand in hand with reading. I, um, my parents valued reading quite a bit. Every week we would go to the library. Every Saturday was library day. We would go, we would take a bunch of books and just read them all week and then drop them back off the next Saturday and just continue that cycle through my entire childhood. That's how it was. And I think having read so many stories and having them read to me, I fell in love with reading stories. And I think when you read a lot, you start getting your own ideas. At least that's what it was for me. I've been writing stories since I could. I don't have a memory of a time when I wasn't writing something. My parents have kept some of my drawings where I drew pictures to tell the stories and then later it became writing. And so I've been writing my entire life. I know some people say they came to writing later and everyone has their own journey and path to writing. But for me, I always wrote. I never, ever thought I would ever get published. But writing is how I make sense of the world. So for me, that's just part of who I am. I, I don't know what or who I would be without writing. So when you mentioned that you weren't really sure if your work would ever get published, did you know when you started writing at a young age that it was very possible to become an author like that was an avenue? No, I never thought I could become an author. I I get to do author visits now as an author and I get to go to schools and talk to kids about how to become an author and my journey. And I never had that. For me, authors were, to become an author was the same as imagining walking on Mars. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know how to even begin getting from point A, writing, to point B, getting published. I didn't know how that worked. And uh, keep in mind, this is before the internet was everywhere. So I didn't have a, you know, easily accessible way to Google how to become a published author and what the steps were. And so I, I just didn't think it was something that quote unquote ordinary people could do like me. And so for me, it stayed a dream until I was an adult. Oh, wow. Okay. So what were you doing basically to marinate yourself and your life experiences to then put it into your stories? So I grew up with South Asian parents and they loved my storytelling and they supported it. But they also said, uh, that's not going to pay the bill. Mm -hmm. It's <laughs> a hobby, so, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And and so I, I understood that because I also didn't think it was possible to get published. So I got it. So I actually went to school to become a teacher and I taught second grade for a couple of years. And then I taught in uh, lower socioeconomic schools and there was a lot of inequity and injustice and it really bothered me. So I went to law school and I got a fellowship where I represented children with chronic and terminal and developmental disabilities with, uh, with their issues in schools. I was always focused on children and working in, on behalf of children, but it was first as a teacher, then as an attorney. And those were the two main professions I had before I became an author. Oh, my God. OK, so you're creative and you're talented and you're basically a genius. That's just no. amazing. I'm like, wow, if I could just hop from one thing to another like you, that I would make my mama real <laughs> proud. Let me tell you, I'm very, very, very impressed. That is so cool. Because I, I was just like thinking about if I had the patience and the drive and the motivation like you, like if I was able to do that, would I have gone into the fields that my mom wanted me to. Like, that's always something I did wonder if it was like a something that I was like, it was innate in me to be able to, you know, jump into business school, like have the patience for that and, and the discipline for yours. Was it at all influenced by your parents? 
Well, the choice to get practical degrees was influenced by my parents, but not exactly what I did. I remember thinking I love to write and I love working with children. And hey, there's a lot of reading and writing in law school. So maybe maybe that's what I'll do. So I tried to take my passion for writing and put it into something that involved a lot of writing. But of course, you know, those are two so totally different things, creative writing and legal writing. But yeah, I, my parents didn't really influence exactly what I did. My parents grew up in Pakistan and they grew up in villages in, in Punjab. And so they came here for a better life materially too. And so I get it. You know, I get that for them, it was about putting food on the table and about making sure that we had clothes to wear and, you know, all those things. And so for them, it, it is really hard to fathom taking a risk because it is a risk when you decide to go into a creative field because you don't know what will happen. I agree with you 100%. And that is something that I'm always interested about parenting and how you parent your children, your sons. And let's say if they wanted to jump into something that is usually what would be seen traditionally as more uh, risky, how would how would you feel about that? It's something that we, me and my husband talk about a lot because it's at odds with our parents' views on those things. But I think for me, if my son said, I want to be an actor, I would also have to see, okay, they want to be an actor, but are they doing anything mm, okay. in support of becoming an actor or a writer or a painter? Are they practicing? Are they passionate about it? Are they reading up on it? Are they, are they asking and begging me to take classes? They're actually showing me that they're willing to put in the effort and, and it's their dream. And it truly is. Even if they're not you know, technically good at it you know, at a young age, I would definitely support them in developing and getting better at it. Okay. I think that's so fair. And you're such an awesome parent. <laughs> so yes, I absolutely agree with that. Okay. So now going back to more of your storytelling journey, right before you published your previous book, Written in the Stars, you were a lawyer. So where was that jumping point from law to then, boom, published writer? <laughs> so for me, I would say until I was in college, I didn't even know that I could ever get published and that it was ever something I could realistically imagine. And so when I started college, I had this one idea about this girl. She's a composite of girls that I had known that were South Asian and were often pressured to get married. I mean, this isn't every South Asian girl. I wasn't, but there's, it was a composite of certain people that I knew in my personal life. And I had this idea that I wanted to write this story about this girl, but that's pretty much where it stayed, just at an idea stage, because I didn't have the time and I knew no one was ever going to publish it. And then so I became a teacher, I became a lawyer. And then while I was studying for the bar exam, I was sitting at a Starbucks and the story just started coming to me about this girl named Nyla. And I started thinking about what she looked like. And I started thinking about who she was in love with and what her parents were like. And I'm like, okay, this is great, but I have to study for the bar exam. <laughs> but this, this idea just kept coming to me. And so I started dividing my bar studying time with studying. Then when I take a break, I would write about this girl. And so I became a, you know, I passed the bar and I became a lawyer and I just needed to keep telling the story. And so for my lunch break, after I got home from work, that was what I was doing. I was writing the story. And wow. again, I didn't know that anyone would ever actually publish it. And um, I, it took me a NaNoWriMo to actually finish the story. I did a NaNoWriMo with a friend and we f I finally was able to finish the story. But I sat on sending it out because even though by then there was internet, <laughs> I just was a little nervous about being told no. 
And I knew the odds were really, really low. So I, I was talking to a friend of mine and I was telling him, I was like, oh, I wish, you know, I have this story. I think it's a good story, but there's no chance it's going to get published. Like the odds of getting an agent are so low. And then for the agent to actually sell it or so low, it just, it doesn't, it's never going to happen. And he said to me, if you don't try, you're never going to know. Wouldn't you rather send it out and get all those rejections and all those no's to follow every avenue and be told no? And then, you know, you know, it's just not meant to be. And he's like, what's the worst that can happen? You'll be in the same situation you are now. And I took his advice to heart and I said, okay. I went on submission to agents. I found my first agent that I had really wanted. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, it took a long time to get it published. I thought once you got an agent, you got published. But as it turned out, that wasn't as easy for me. And so it took about 29 no's. And then on the 30th submission, I got a yes for Written in the Stars. Oh, that's so inspiring. Um, <laughs> you have no idea. We I just sent out a survey to the community and... That's one of the pain points that they're having, the struggles, is dealing with a lot of no's and how to get past that. So I know that anytime there's stories like this and experiences that guests share about going through rejections and finally getting that that one yes, it always lights them up and it becomes one of the most memorable episodes. So thank you so much for <laughs> sharing that. No, I'm serious. So thank you for that. Before I jump into more of your story, are there any resources or advice that you can share with the community for those who are going through the querying trenches or preparing to and any advice that you have to pass on to them? Sure. So I found my agent the old fashioned way. What I did was, I don't even know if there was a query tracker then. It was, I believe, 2010. And I just went to my local bookstore and I looked through all the spines and I looked at all the books written by people of color because there weren't that many. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so at that time, especially, and I started looking to see who's publishing, who's publishing the kind of books I want and publishing people of color. And I looked at the acknowledgments and I saw which agency was thanked in the acknowledgments. And that's how I made my list of who to submit to or books that were a lot like mine people that were already representing people of color, that was important to me. And that's how I did my querying. I didn't have a lot to go on. I actually just, I had bought a book from, I think it's, what is it called? Those Publishers Market Guide mm, to Getting yes, Published. I think, I think I've seen those in the library. Yeah. Yes. I don't think anyone uses those now, but <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about publishing. And I was like, okay, that says this is the guide to get publishing. So uh, to get published. So I so I got it. And, um, and they had some samples in there and they had some keys on how to do it. So my point is I didn't I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it because I didn't know I should have. <laughs> so I I just yeah, I did the best I could. I didn't really have a whole lot of uh, samples to set it against. I didn't even know to search for that. I didn't even know to do that. I should have done that maybe. But uh, but it worked but yeah, out though. So it worked out. It worked out. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I did it. I just, I used that book and I, um, I just wrote the best query letter that I could. Oh, I love that. Okay. So now I would love to go into Amal Unbound. And if you could give us a snapshot of the story of what you want us to know, and then we'll start there. So Amal Unbound was seven years in the making. It took me seven years to write. And it's about a girl who lives in a village in Pakistan, not too different from the one that my own family is from. And she 
is the oldest of five siblings and all girls. She is just becoming aware of gender inequity and all these other different things. And she still is too young to really process all of it, but she feels it. When her mother has the youngest child, she falls into postpartum depression. And as a result, her dad tells her she has to stay home and she can't go to school until her mother is better. And when she expresses her discomfort and and disappointment at this, her father pretty much just shrugs off the education aspect. So she just gets frustrated. And one day at the market, when somebody hits her with a car, and then they actually are implying that she should apologize for being hit by the car. And she finally loses it on the stranger. All the frustration on not being able to go to school, the gender inequalities, everything just bubbles up. And she tells the stranger off and runs away. But it turns out that he was the powerful landlord of the entire village. He is very insulted that she publicly disrespected him. And so as punishment, she's going to become a servant in his house. And the book follows her journey into indentured servitude. What was the inspiration for the story? I I knew I wanted to write a story set in Pakistan. I feel like There's not a whole lot of children's literature set in Pakistan that's written by people from Pakistan. And um, if any, maybe at that time, there's a couple, there's a couple, but not many. And so I knew I wanted to write about it. I knew I wanted to show a side of it that you don't see in the media and in what, you know, in the Western world, which you don't see. And I knew I wanted to write about this girl. Just like Nyla came to me, this girl had come to me just randomly. I knew I wanted to write about her, but I didn't know what I wanted to say about her. In 2012, I read about Malala and I started following happened to her just like everybody else was and how inspiring she was and what she went through and how she didn't back down. And now she's, you know, she won the Nobel Peace Prize and everything. And as I was watching all the press and all the attention, I started seeing that a lot of Pakistanis were disgruntled about Malala, didn't like Malala. So I started exploring them. Like, why would you not like Malala? Why would you, why would you have a problem with a girl who got shot in the head (laughs) because she wanted an education? What I realized was it wasn't that they were upset with Malala. It was that she was seen as this extraordinary girl who did something no one else in Pakistan does. And I realized that people felt like she was seen as an anomaly when in fact, there's so many other people who are also fighting against inequity every single day people who will not get their names in the headlines, people who will actually not have a happy ending. And so I started thinking about that, about all the other girls. I started reading about other girls in Pakistan who are fighting against injustice and inequity, often not with happy endings. Because of that, I started thinking, I want to write about a girl like that, a girl who's brave, who does the best that she can under her circumstances, but she's never going to get that headline. But she's still brave and what she's doing still matters. For research, were you able to pull from any sources like direct interviews? So for my research process, I mean, the story is set in Pakistan in a village that is a fictionalized version of my own parents' village. And so I I had a lot of uh, readers from my, my village that could read it. I interviewed them and talked to them. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the brunt of my research. And then also researching indentured servitude, what that looked like, not just in Pakistan, but around the world, the different ways that it can be. And I was, it was a tough decision for me because, uh, the indentured servitude situation that Amal goes through in the book is pretty much the best case scenario realistically, because what most people go through when they're forced into this kind of servitude, sorry, what most people go through when they, um, when they're in this sort of indentured servitude is much worse. 
much darker, especially for a woman. But I also knew I was writing for a target audience of third, fourth, and fifth grade. And so I had to balance the dark reality with accessibility as well, while also keeping it authentic. And so I I had to add an author's note to address that, that while Maul goes through some really bad stuff, what she goes through is actually the best case scenario for a person in her situation. How do you think that your research for Amal Unbound has left an impact on you or your perspective, whether it's deepened or broadened? I think the best thing about being able to research an issue like with Written in the Stars, it was forced marriage, although the book isn't just about forced marriage. That is a big aspect of it. And in Amal Unbound, indentured servitude is also part of it. So is misogyny and patriarchy and those Mm -hmm. things. I think the biggest benefit that I get, especially because I get to write for young people, is I get to take those lessons. And not only do I get to share a story, but I also get to share those lessons that I learned about those issues, especially when it comes to school visits and meeting children in person. I get to talk about the book, but I also get to talk about an issue that's very inequitable and that's a problem. And the most heartening things that's ever happened for me is um, with Written in the Stars, In the author's note, I had recommended readings and organizations that work with people who Mm -hmm. are being forced into marriage. And I had a reader tell me that she actually lived near one of the forced marriage unit centers and she interned for them because of the book and because of the contact information in the back of the book. And now she wants to dedicate her life to working on this issue. And that was amazing. And so I think I think it's just that that's the greatest um, that's the greatest meaning that it has for me is to be able to not only write a story that's in and of itself just a story, but also explore this issue that can have an off route and impact on people in ways that I wouldn't even imagine. Wow, that's that was an incredible story about that reader. I'm very much touched hearing that. So I cannot imagine how much more moved you were. There was a sentence that really stood out to me in your letter that you wrote to readers. And it says doing the right thing despite the risks it may involve, is the bravest thing there can be. When it came to making that choice for your main character, Amal, how do you come to that decision of what that biggest risk was going to be, like the bravest thing? Many, many revisions and rewrites. Yeah, I was going to say, my gosh, how many drafts was this? (laughs) Seven years. So I'd say, oh, I can't even began to fathom how many drafts there were. I honestly have lost count at least 25, 30. There were, there were so many that at times I just wanted to hit the delete button and say, I just am not capable of writing this book. I can't do another revision of this book. Oh, but, no. you know, and it's so funny because it's a thin little book. And, you know, I think Jacqueline Woodson once said about Brown Girl Dreaming, I was at a panel listening to her. She said, you know, people tell me that they've read Brown Girl Dreaming in a couple of hours and I wince because it took me so long to write that book. I remember that. I remember that. That was really powerful. And I do think that even though you say that it's a it's like a thin book, I'm like, those are some of the most difficult books to write, to have to cut down and chisel all the way to your exact point you're trying to share is one of oh, the yeah. most hardest things you can do. Like for me, I love going on and on. So I would never be able to do that. So I think that is brilliant what you're able to do. So just getting to the core of it. Yeah, there were so many characters that are no longer on the page that were big parts of the story. There were plot points and storylines that are just gone because we wanted to keep it, you know, focused on what actually mattered, what the story was about. So, yeah, as far as what it was that she had to do to become brave, I think that was 
at its core always there, that she was going to have a choice that would help to take down this landlord. I think the process of, I guess, spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about the spoiler alerts because this community is, uh, even though they're all readers, they're more so writers. So for them, they love learning about the process. They love hearing what was cut out or what's in there so that when they get through to that point in your book, oh, they, can they have a deeper understanding and they feel like they got a little sneak peek. So that's, oh, I should okay. have given you that a heads up. I'm sorry <laughs> okay, about okay, that. Okay, no, no, no problem. Okay, so then I can talk about it. Um, yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so in the end, Amal is the person that brings down the landlord, this evil man who's ruled this, um, whose family has ruled this village for generations. And one thing that was important as I was writing the story was I wanted to lay the framework that even though Amal did something incredibly brave that sped up the process, if you read the book, you'll see that there was already a lot going on that was probably eventually going to get this man taken down because he was making the wrong people angry all over the place. But it ended up being that Amal happened to be the one to do it. I wanted her to be able to take him down, but I also wanted it to be very believable that this man was already kind of falling from grace. And so what she did simply helped accelerate the process. Okay, so this is where I'm going to jump in as well to pick a little bit further technical side of it. How sure. were you able to, because that's a lot of pieces you're putting together. Were you putting up note cards, index cards up on the wall just to see it so that you don't get lost in your thoughts? How are you able to stay organized and be like, okay, I need to create this entire web, but this point is going to be where it's going to lead to? Like, how are you keeping organized? I think the way that I keep organized as a writer is I write longhand whenever I'm confused. Uh, okay. So I have notebooks for each book, sometimes several notebooks. Because when I stare at the laptop and I see all those words jumbling, I just get, I get a little frazzled. I don't mm. even know where to begin. And so usually I'll print out my book and I'll notate it by hand. Mm. And then I write longhand and that's how I make sense of it. I also, when I'm reading, like, for example, I want to take this landlord down. I want it to be organic in a way because he was already going down and she's accelerating the process. And I just kind of want to lay those key hints along the way for people if they reread to catch. What I do is I'll print out the book and then I will only read those parts just oh, to make sure. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so this is the one foundation. Then this is the second clue. And this is the second clue. Are they all building on the last clue? And I individually read it. I actually do that for all my characters. It just helps me keep track of it. So like there's a sister Seema in the book and I read her stuff all separately. I go through it all just to make sure it all sounds like her, isn't inconsistent with her because I will lose track if I'm in somebody else's head and then I jump back to her. I could see a lot of people like if they're driving, I'm like worried that they're listening to this and they're going to pull over and like write notes. So thank you <laughs> as for long that. As they pull over. <laughs> yes, as long as you pull over, guys. So you mentioned also something that really got me curious as well. The amount of revisions you've had to go through. And then you also said that you had to cut so many stories out. I'm assuming this is what you're doing going back and forth with your editor, correct? I would say I sent it to my editor in 2015. So 2011 to 2015, this was right. my own story that I was revising. And I think on my own, I probably went through about 10 revisions. <laughs> and then I sent it to my editor and something didn't feel right, even when I sold it. I was like, there's something off about it, but I don't know what it is. I thought about it and thought about it. And then basically, I just gave it to my editor at that point. I said, I don't know what else I can do. And when she got back to me, she said, you know this voice. So, okay, sorry, I should backtrack. I initially, <laughs> I initially 
I sold this book as a young adult book. And I intended to write a young adult novel about this story. Oh. And when I when I sold it, I and I was revising it a little and looking it over right before I sent it to my editor, something just didn't feel right about it, but I didn't know exactly what it was. And so when I sent it to my editor and I got her feedback, her response was, you know why something's a little off? It's because this isn't really young adult. This is a middle grade book you wrote. <laughs> and I it was just one of those things. She was like, the voice is much younger than the age of the character. And so that also took a lot of revisions because it's not easy to just switch from at one age range to another age range. It mm -hmm. takes a lot of work. And this was my first attempt at middle grade. And so that just took a lot of work. Just the word choices you have to use and the sentence structure, making it accessible, balancing the darkness with light, all those different things. Well, how'd you know what to change to make it more middle grade? Like, how'd you know that you had to rephrase and reformulate some of the sentences and even like the wordings? When my editor told me this felt more like a middle grade book, the first thing I did was I went to the library and checked out every middle grade book by every author that I loved and respected. And so I pretty much that took a lot of time. So before I began writing, I dove into reading. I read The War That Saved My Life. I read Ali Benjamin's uh, The Thing About Jellyfish, all these different middle grade books um, so that I could get into that headspace and mm. what those kinds of books look like exactly. I'd read them casually, but never never as a writer. And so, yeah, I had to do that. I had to read and study the craft before I could even consider rewriting it. And when I did rewrite it, I had to start from a blank page oh, wow. because there was no way to revise and cut and play with the sentences. It just had to be rewritten from scratch. Initially, it was a first person past tense as young adult, I mean, present tense. And then for middle grade, I just, after reading so much, I felt like the story would be stronger in past tense. And so everything had to be rewritten. <laughs> Is past tense something that's more normalized in like the voice and how it's written? I feel like there's more past tense in middle grade. At least what I, I, I could be completely wrong. It could just be my luck of the books that I chose. <laughs> but uh, the, but the only 10, 20, 30 books, right? Written in past <laughs> <Yeah>. tense. <laughs> so I feel like all the ones that I read um, were past tense. And so when I tried it in past tense, I felt like the voice just flowed better. I don't know why. But yeah, it did. And so that's what I did. That is insane that you went through that many revisions. And also your initiative for just going to the library right away and just checking out all the books that you respected. Hello, talk about good researcher. Um, <laughs> and another question I just thought of too, is there anything else that the public has no idea about that you're comfortable sharing with us about this process of writing it? You know, whether it was the emotional side or the craft side. One thing about this book is, as I mentioned before, it took a lot of revisions. It seems yeah. that's just how I work. I just am somebody that has a lot of revisions when they write. And this book was initially meant to be published, I believe, in spring 2017. Mm -hmm. Then it got pushed to summer. Then it got pushed to fall 2017. Then it got pushed to spring 2018. Oh, wow. And then summer 2018. And oh. my heart was breaking every time I had to find out that we had to push it because the book wasn't ready yet. It wasn't ready yet just because there was more work to be done. There was a storyline that needed to go. Everything. I agreed. I agreed that it needed more time, but it's mm. so difficult when you're ready and you think your book's going to be published in a certain time frame yeah. and then it's not. It's yeah. it's very heartbreaking and you start seeing, 
you know, you see your other author friends who started out the same as you, their books are coming out. So what did I do wrong? Why, why am I the slow one here? And my editor always kept reassuring me. She said, it's not when it comes out, it's the, it's the book. We want the book to be the best book it can be. Whenever it's published, it needs to be the best it can be. And I understood what she was saying, but it still felt so bad because I just was, why, why, why can't I also write as fast? And why do these, why do I need so many revisions all the time? And, and I think the lesson that I have, because now the book that I have in my hands is nothing like the book that would have been published two years ago or Mm. a year ago. It's the book it was meant to be now. And I could never have predicted when I sold this book that some of the themes in it would become timely about resisting and about speaking up against injustice and all these different topics. I never could have imagined that this would be a book that would give young readers a different kind of comfort than it would have last year or even two years ago. I just think from my experience, be patient with yourself, be gentle with the process, let the process take as long as it needs to, and just hold on to that. Just keep that in the forefront of your mind. Oh, that was so freaking good. Not even joking. I was going to ask you one of the questions towards the end was, what is the best advice you've received and you would give to our community? And boom, you just like killed it. Two birds (laughs) with one stone. I'm like, all right, she's coming in here to kill it in this interview. Okay. Again, I mentioned that I sent out a survey recently. And coincidentally, that's something that the listeners also wrote down is dealing with delays and not knowing how to deal with the frustrations and also the impatience and also feeling that lack of confidence starting to really get at them. So this is very much going to be like a band-aid to their wounds. So thank you so much for that. Well, on that note, I think one thing other authors have also said on Twitter and other places, but one thing that's really important to remember is that lack of confidence doesn't go away no matter how many books you write. I remember I was tweeting I think when I was starting to write my third book, which will be out later um, in 2020, I was writing that book and I tweeted, when will it get easier to write these books? When will I not be afraid that I won't be able to finish it? And Sarah Dessen replied and said, never. (laughs) She said, I'm still waiting for that answer myself. And I thought she's had over 20 books published and still every time she's not confident, she's not sure if she's going to be able to finish it. So I think if you feel a lack of confidence or unsure, that's just part of this. You don't learn to overcome it. You just learn how to live with it. And you learn to understand that it's normal and you just keep going. Thank you for that. (laughs) I'm just like so happy right now. I have the biggest smile on my face because I cannot wait. you. You have no idea. I cannot wait for the listeners to hear what you've been saying. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is such a gold mine. Thank you so much. Um, So now before I know, because we're cutting close to 3 p.m., I definitely want to squeeze in a few more questions. You are a founding member of We Need Diverse Books. How has that journey been making a difference in this publishing industry? I just love it so much. I am no longer on the executive committee. I had a baby, my third son, and I was like, I I can't do it all. (laughs) So I'm not part of it officially anymore, but I still support it and love, love everything that they do. And I love everyone who's part of it. For me, I remember I got my book deal and I was so excited. And it was a few days later that I went online, just Googling around and trying to figure out, well, how does book publishing work? How do you market a book? What are sales like? How, How does any of this work? I didn't know anything. I had no publishing friends nobody. 
And I came across Ellen O's website where she had posted these amazing, well-researched articles about how hard it is for people of color to get published and how hard it is for them to be successful at publishing because publishers didn't often put their money behind these authors. And so then without any visibility, without being sent places, their books tanked, thus creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that diverse books don't sell. And I read all her articles and I just felt my stomach sink. I was like, great. So now I have a book coming out, but it'll probably tank and no one will read it. And so I found her on Twitter after reading it and I was thanking her for what she wrote and how it was really educational. And it was just happenstance that she at that moment was tweeting about this very issue. I think BookCon had just released its panel lineup and it was all white, all male. Oh. And and that was what everybody on book Twitter was discussing at the moment. And I was very new to Twitter too, pretty much at that time. So I didn't know a whole lot about Twitter. Anyways, I ended up just joining in on this conversation with Ellen and Melinda Lowe, and then all these other people organically started joining in. And then we said, let's just take it offline. Let's email each other and let's see what we can do. And so we decided, how about we make a hashtag? We need diverse books and just talk to people and spread the word. And people who also want this will also tweet about it. And we could never have imagined that it went so viral. And then BookCon saw it all, invited us to do a panel at that BookCon. And we thought, no one's going to show up to this panel. There's Mindy Kaling here, and there's all these amazing actors and celebrities. They had to turn people away from our panel. It was packed. (gasps) There were so many people. And I think at that moment, we, the people who are the founding members, we realized this isn't just a hashtag. This needs to be more. We have to take this enthusiasm and this passion and do more with it. And that's how we became an organization. And I mean, I think it's self-evident how much good that they have done. That is so inspiring. I did not know anything about that book con story. Like I had no idea because this was several years ago, right? 2014. Okay. Because I only just came across book con two years ago when I started doing the podcasting. Well, a year after I got into the podcasting um, and I wasn't too familiar with uh, especially young adult book world until it was 88 cups of tea. And then when I heard about book con, I looked it up. It was, you know, when I started checking them out, there was already a lot of diversity. So that's yeah. why it's obvious that you guys made a huge change there. Yeah. And I love the behind the scenes of how it came to be. I always <laughs> love that. I always love those origin stories. Before we start wrapping up, I do want to throw in your listener question from Melissa C. She says that she adores you in all capital letters. Aww. And she says she remembers reading Written in the Stars and she was unable to put it down. And her question for you is, how do you go about writing difficult scenes with the utmost care? Oh, that's a good question. The most difficult scenes are actually very heavy on me personally, because in order to write those scenes, I have to go into my character's head. I have to actually emotionally go through it. At least that's the way it is for me. In Written in the Stars, there are some very bad things that happened to her, to put it lightly. (laughs) And I had to put myself in her shoes. And I still can't read those chapters in which the things that happened to her take place. I can't read them. It's too hard. Same with in Amal and Bound, when she finds out she has to leave her family and everything behind. I still have a hard time reading that chapter because it just takes you to a very dark place where you have to stay as you revise and you write that scene. And um, people, uh, sorry, one second. Oh, no worries. <laughs> oh, he's so cute. <laughs> Cameo. He's so cute. Uh-oh. 
sorry. Oh no, don't worry. I love this so cute. <laughs> okay. This makes it real. I love it. <laughs> it's my two-year-old. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, so so it's really emotionally draining. Maybe that's why. I, I don't know. I, I think that maybe part of it is just the fact that I actually end up living in my character's head fully. And the days that I'm writing those scenes, my husband can always tell. He's like, you're writing something really dark. And I'm like, yeah, because it really does. It affects It, it really brings me down because mm-hmm. I have to think about this constantly. And not only are these sad scenes that are happening in this fictional book, they're a reality for some mm-hmm. people. And so it's not just that I'm writing this character, I'm writing a reality that many people face. And so I think empathizing very deeply with the people that are going through it helps me to write it the way that I do. Thank you so much for that and for answering Melissa's question. Now let's wrap it up with where everyone can find you on social media to say hi. Oh, sure. I'm on uh, Twitter where you'll find me frequently at A-I-S-H-A-C-S, Aisha C-S, and same username for Instagram as well. A-I-S-H-A-C-S, Aisha C-S. Amazing. Thank you so much. And oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that your poor son had to be locked out. <laughs> Have you seen that? Com- that the, the uh, interview with a guy? Are you talking with about the kid? Yes, yeah, where his daughter dancing. walks in barging in with yeah. the glasses. So cute. <laughs> I was retweeting that like crazy. I loved it so much. I thought that baby was the cutest thing in the world. It was so funny where the dad was just like trying to go on. I'm like, dude, you could totally pick up your daughter, man. It was so funny. But yeah. yeah, no, that that's that's why I was relieved when this was an audio because I've done Skype school visits before. And I mean, as much as the babysitter or my husband try to keep that kid, he just he wants to get it. And if I forget to lock the door, he will be sitting in my lap for the entire He's, school. You know what? Now session. I regret that we don't do Skype videos. Thanks a lot. Now I'm like, dang it. Now because of this, I'm like, maybe. We should turn into Skype videos. Um, I would have loved to have seen that. I would have been waving like crazy, like, hello. And he would have been like, who's that crazy lady waving at us, mom? But that no. is so cute. Thank you so much. And please tell your son I'm so sorry. I know he's two years old. He probably has no idea who the hell I am and like won't understand what I'm saying. But let him know I'm so sorry. And I, I did not mean to make him get locked out. But I loved that little cameo. You have no idea. I think that'll be like the highlight. I'm going to be like, check out who gets to make a little cameo in her episode. <laughs> it's hard being a mom. And I freaking have so much respect for moms like you guys, like making it happen and seriously hustling. So yeah, well, when my when my book, A Mall and Bound came out, my five-year-old said to me, I'm like, look, honey, this is mama's book. It's at the bookstore. And he was like, great. Can you retire? now oh. and I was like <laughs> I was like uh no <laughs> so, yeah you're I, like mama's I, I got dreams too and mama's got to put food on the table <laughs> and like you know be an example for you so you could chase your dreams too so no <laughs> ain't gonna be retiring soon oh my gosh seriously thank you so much for your time oh thank you for having me I'm even more moved that knowing that you are taking care of your son and made time for this. Thank you again. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. care. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. And that wraps up our episode with Aisha Saeed. Aisha, thank you so much for that really lovely conversation and for sharing such a goldmine of advice from all of your experiences. I loved chatting with you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Aisha on Twitter at AishaCS. To access her show notes page, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Aisha dash Saeed. 
Don't forget to check out J.C. Cervantes's beautifully written article and Olivia Liu's 88 Cups of Tea three-year anniversary recap along with Melora Chang's photos. I included the links in the summary section of the podcast player you're listening to right now so it's easier for you to click on. You can find 88 Cups of Tea on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Come say hi and write a review for us at Apple Podcasts. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. From what I hear, the more listeners we have subscribed and write a review, the better it is for us to reach new listeners, which is so helpful for the show and for anyone who's looking for inspiration. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.